0: Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Actormat. The Actormat. Hi hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today we will be speaking with guest expert, Professor Susan M. Reverby, historian of American health care, women, race, and public health with a focus on equality and ethics, as well as the author of Examining Tuskegee, the infamous syphilis study and its legacy. Let's hear what she has to say. Hi, Professor Reverby. How are you? I'm fine, Rebecca. How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us.
2: I'm excited to have you on. I'm really happy to be here. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Given what's going on in the world, I'm happy to be yes. here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Same. Yeah, no kidding. We're, we're super samezies over here. Uh-huh. Um, so I was hoping we could start off by having you give us a rundown of what the US healthcare system was like in the 1920s. Um, did people have health insurance? Was it costly to visit a doctor?
2: Yes. I mean, there was some health insurance, um, little bits of it. Often people would form groups to, uh, you know, like the Lions Club, you know, different clubs or pay into uh, insurance. The biggest one of the biggest insurers were things like Prudential Life Insurance and Metropolitan Life Insurance, for for example, provided health care, health insurance. But most people paid out of pocket. For their healthcare. I mean, even in the 60s, I remember during my first jobs, I had health insurance to pay for a doctor in the hospital or for hospital care, but I did not have money to pay, I did not have insurance that paid for the doctor visits. For oh, example. Wow. So, and there wasn't any kind of, you know, there was no Medicaid that doesn't come in or Medicare that doesn't come in until the 60s till 1966. So most people had to pay out of pocket for any medical care that they were going to receive.
0: So how big of a public crisis was syphilis at the time of the Tuskegee study?
2: It was very big. I mean, it was one of the issues was it was a sort of not supposed to be talked about in polite companies. So for example, when um, Surgeon General Thomas Perrin tried to go on CBS uh, radio actually in the 30s to talk about syphilis, they wouldn't let him use the word. Um, and so we ended up not being able to do the broadcast. So there was a lot of silence and morality, um, issues around it. I mean, and it was, um, you know, it was not a silence. It was more like it was kept secret. And so that was a lot of the concern, but the numbers I saw most recently was said it affected one in 10, for example, and because it could be passed on, from in the family to a child during childbirth for an affected mother, it was considered really serious because of its you know ability to pass on um, through a family, so you get lots of plays and movies about this like Ibsen's The Ghosts is about syphilis, for example oh wow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What are the secrets in the family? What is the respectable man having sowed his wild oats somewhere? And of course, the assumption is that only sex workers or prostitutes, as they are then known, are the pool of infection, right? So it's, uh, it, and where do they get it? It must spontaneously appear in their vaginas somehow because <laughs> men couldn't possibly have given it to them. <laughs> right. And, of course, there, wow. there was also an assumption that it was um, – there was a different incidence of it by uh, race. So white physicians used the term – thought of uh, African-Americans as a, a, quote, syphilis-soaked race uh, was the term. And they tended to see more of it in the black community, I think, for um, one major reason, which is that um, if you were a white middle-class person and you went to your physician, for example – Syphilis was a reportable disease. That is, you were supposed to report it to the public health department. But if you're seeing, I don't know, the mayor of small town America, right, you're not going to report it to the local health department. So then, but often African Americans had to rely upon more public clinics for care. And so those numbers got reported. So it's really interesting. We see these numbers and there are larger numbers in the black community, but it, also, it may reflect, A, where people are getting care um, and what's reported and not reported. And secondly, frankly, condoms are not cheap. And so what I keep saying to everybody is all it meant is that the men in Tuskegee had more unprotected sex. That's all. Or the I condoms see. broke or they didn't have condoms.
0: Wow! I, we, I hadn't even thought of putting condoms up on the board yeah. for
2: our show. <laughs> yeah, no, think about it. I mean, you know, I mean, of that, course. Yeah, right, exactly. So, and that's ex- so, they're expensive, you know. And people didn't have any. It was the it was in the 30s. We we're talking about the study starts in the high, you know, in the height of the depression. So,
0: right, right. So then, how does the study come about, and who are some of the key players in the United States Public Health Service that helps spearhead? Um, and why, frankly, why do they think this, it's a good idea?
2: Well, they thought it was a good idea because by the 30s, the drugs that had been used, um, that were being used to, so this is before penicillin. Penicillin doesn't prove to be a, a cure for early syphilis until 1943. So penicillin starts to be used in the 20s and 30s, but it's still so rare and so hard to get that literally if patients had used penicillin, they often titrated their urine afterward to get the penicillin back out to reuse it. <laughs> so it, Wow. It, and it doesn't, anyway, it doesn't prove useful for uh, syphilis until the 40s. And so we're talking about the 30s. And so at that point, the uh, uh, the idea that the drugs that were being used, which was mercury, uh, primarily so, and ne- something called neoercephenamine and bismuth, so heavy metals, was the idea that it would take the syphilis- Spirochete, which fluffy- I wish our listeners could see. Yeah, yeah, sorry, it's this a- is my pink fluffy spirochete. <laughs> <laughs> Some company makes toys, actually, of all the different. I have gonorrhea too, if you want to see it. But in any event. Um- so the, the heavy metal drugs were being used, and there was beginning to be some question about whether or not they worked at all, and particularly when people got to the third stage of the disease where it either could do nothing or it could affect both the cardiovascular or the neurological system. So there was an adage that went, if a man has survived 25 years with syphilis, he's to be congratulated, not treated. Because So there was a real debate about whether the treatment worked. And think about what we know about mercury. So remember that the Mad Hatter in, mm-hmm. um, in Alice in Wonderland is mad because mm-hmm. you use mercury to stiffen the felt when you make hats. <gasps> That's why he's crazy, because of the mercury <laughs> that he would have in- in- inhaled. So... Um, that, that one of the reasons. So there was really concern about where the neurological damage we we're seeing, for example, caused by the mercury in treatment rather than the disease itself. So there were lots of questions that were really important, actually, about what to do about this disease. And there had been a study um, in the 1910s in Oslo, Norway, that looked at, um, it was a sort of retrospective study where they had stopped treating, and they were trying to figure out whether it the disease really didn't need to be treated after it got to a certain stage. So it's only contagious in the first stage, maybe a little bit in the second. But by the third stage of the disease, it's affecting other organs of the body. Not so you don't see the same um, rashes and um, pustules that you would have seen in what was called the Shanker um, a sore um, that you see in the first and second stages. So the idea. So what had happened is there had been an attempt in um, money from the. Um, from the uh, Rosenwald Foundation in the late 20s did a study in six counties in the rural south to prove that you could treat African Americans. And the study was very successful, but then the depression hits. Rosenwald Foundation is running out of money and the study stops. But the public health service realizes it's found this pool of infection inside Macon County Uh, Alabama, which is the county seat is Tuskegee. Um, And they suddenly thought, well, here's a pool of infection. We know there's a lot of people here. Why don't we see what happens if we don't treat? And in the beginning, they treated a little bit because the health department in in, in the county insisted. But then as the depression deepens, they don't have any money and they run out and they think, well, we've got you know, it's kind of we've got all these people. They probably wouldn't be treated anyway. So they think of it almost like uh, a study in nature, even though they've, of course, created the nature. Um, and so they decide that they're going to uh, work out a study and they do it in cooperation with um, the Tuskegee, Univers- uh, what's now Tuskegee University was then Tuskegee Institute, which had a small hospital on its uh, campus, and then there was a uh, a Veterans uh, Affairs hospital for Black people in the county, just down the road, literally like less than a mile from Tuskegee Institute. And so they worked out the cooperation with Tuskegee Institute, and they um, hired a local nurse named Eunice Rivers to work um, to go out into the community as a public health nurse and to basically recruit the men in schools and churches. Um, and in the fields, really, literally, and then to um, convince them that they were going to be uh, treated for their bad blood, which was a kind of generic term for syphilis, but also for other kinds of illnesses um, that was pretty common. So the idea was to track these men and to see what happened and to give them um, aspirins and iron tonics and vitamins and to tell them they were being treated for their bad blood. So the whole idea of the study is built on deceit from the very beginning.
0: And can you tell us a little about the men who were recruited for the study? So, how, how, yeah. Go ahead. How were the the public uh, officials wrong in, you know, talk to us about the racist stereotypes that they projected onto them.
2: Okay, so the assumption was, as I said earlier, that this would be a syphilis-soaked race, that they had already done a study in the county and found a large pool of infections. So they felt like they would just, it would be easier to find lots and lots of people um, who were infected. And they wanted to use men not just women, um, because they felt like it was easier, in some ways it's right, if a man has a sore on his penis, he can see it, right? So then they could, one of the questions in the questionnaire when they asked the men about what happened to them is to ask them when they first noticed the sore. So you're trying to date how long they've had the disease. Um, And if the sore in a woman's vagina, it's less likely that she'll know it's, you know, it was there. I mean, she might feel it, but it was, they felt that they couldn't get it accurate. Portrait, and then there's also always the worry when you use women that they might get pregnant and then um, deliver a child who would be sick. So the assumption was that they would just look at men, and they also thought they'd find more disease if they just use men. and The and the assumption was, of course, that African American men were more sexually active; that there would so there just would be more disease because there was more sexuality.
0: And like you said, these were low income
2: uh, right. sharecroppers. This is right? mostly farmers, uh, you, know, uh, you know, farmers work. I mean, not everybody was completely uneducated, but um, mostly they were sharecroppers. Uh, the phrase that I learned when I, when I was working in Tuskegee, which I thought was so interesting, they would say, a friend of mine was driving around and we were talking about the families involved and she said, the Jones family stayed here. So she didn't use the term rented here or owned here or lived here. She said stayed here, which I just thought was fascinating because it gave you a sense of sort of People moved about, you know, from oh. land, you know, they were kind of landless peasants in that sense, um, wow. in the way to think about it. And I thought that word was so fascinating to me because I'd never heard it anywhere else. I mean, you don't say somebody stayed here unless you're talking about a hotel you visited yes. Not a trip, right? <laughs> Not somewhere you live with your family. So it gives you a right. sense of, and, you know, the, Eunice Rivers, Laurie, the uh, black woman who was the nurse, um, you know, was respected figure in the community. She'd gone; she's from Georgia, but she had gone to school in Tuskegee. She was the school nurse for lots of people as well. This was a; she worked on the study, but it was pretty part time. She also was a public health nurse. She'd help. Um, do some of the earliest research on um, vital statistics in the, in the state when, when we weren't even counting black deaths and births in the 20s. So she did a lot of that work. She was a very good public health nurse. And so people trusted her. I remember one of the men in the study who was still alive when I was doing my research said to me, you know, we always loved her. So there just was this deep relationship to her.
0: Right. I mean, she obviously comes up, comes about as a very complicated figure in this whole process. Um, You know, I I wonder what her what I I mean, I know, I I think I've read that she did know what was happening. She was aware. Um, I'm just curious, like, what is her legacy? Why did she why did she do it? How, how vital was she in the continuation yeah, she, of the study?
2: She becomes, um, I mean, part of the reason we're so focused on her, I think there are a couple of explanations for it. First of all, there are, I mean, it, the study goes on for 40 years, right? From 1932 to 1972. So it's the longest running non-therapeutic research study that we know of in American history. And so you can imagine hundreds of doctors, come and go from the Public Health Service. There's lots of names in the first major book written on it by Jim Jones. It's really hard to keep track of who who's there when, you know, there's just lots of names. But Jones wrote a whole chapter on Rivers because he got to interview her before she passed away. Um, so she becomes sort of the only sort of figure that stands out when we tell the story in lots of ways. And also she's the nurse, right? So we kind of expect the doctors to behave badly on some level, but the nurse is supposed to be the caregiving um, figure. So I think it's an artifact of in part sort of the sexism of expectation for her. Mm. It's because in the original book written, which everybody then used it before mine came out, that she's this, you know, key figure that we are all trying to figure out. And There's a part of us that want her, of course, to like either call a news conference or stand up in the middle of the square, right? So there's a big square in the middle of Tuskegee. We wanted her to stand up in the middle of the square and scream her head off, right? And say, oh my God, they're doing this. Stop, 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 right? Except she, first of all, couldn't have walked across the front part of the square because there was a Confederate statue of a Confederate soldier in the middle of the square in Tuskegee. And she wasn't allowed to stand in front of it. Black people weren't supposed to walk in front of the Wow. In a county that's 80 percent. black. (laughs) So, you know, it's actually a discussion going on now about finally taking this bloody statue down. But um, so what would she have been able to do? You know, and if she had done it, they would have just replaced her with somebody else who would have done it. So I argue, actually, that I found the evidence that I think she helped people um, get out of the study behind the scenes. So I found enough stuff to make a claim about that. There's still a dispute in the historical literature, whether I'm right or not. But I found enough, including a letter from one of the public health doctors in the 50s who said, look, I found this guy who who we had lost to the follow-up, but then I found him again. And he went to the public health department. He got a whole series of penicillin shots. This is in the 50s. He's a good friend of Nurse Rivers and her family. I have a feeling she's doing something else. I mean, he just says it straight out. So- I think it's really interesting. And so I found some other evidence. So I make the argument that I think she might have, in fact, been telling them to do something else. I can't prove it. She had died by the right. time I did my research. Um, my friend Jim Jones, who did the original book on it, got to talk to her and said, yeah. look, she would have told me. And I thought, nah, you're a white Southern guy and she's <laughs> a black Southern woman. She wouldn't have told you anything. Um, and Wow. So, you yeah. know. You know, there's a debate. I mean, he and I are very good friends, but there's still this argument that goes back and forth. So I think that's what's complicated about her. Uh, Yeah. and, And also remember, it's one of those situations where when people have nothing you can give them a little something. So she becomes what I call the private public health nurse for all the men and their families. So if your family gets sick, you get to call Rivers. And you live 10 miles out in the country. And you, in the Depression, one of the men told me they didn't have enough money to pay for the license tags on their automobiles, so they shared them. Right? So they would take a license plate off one car and loan it to the next person if they had to drive off. She would show up in her car. She would drive them into Tuskegee. Some people had never been in Tuskegee, even though it was 10 miles away. And um, I lived in West Virginia for a year in the 1970s, and I had a neighbor who never went to town, and it was 10 miles away. Um, too. So, I think you have to really think about rural folk and what it means to just stay on your land or walk to the next farm, but not go anywhere. And so, I I mean, I experienced that this was in a white community in rural West Virginia, but in the 1970s. So, I imagine in the 30s. Also, we're talking about not paved roads. So, a lot of people are still running, you know, uh, horses and buggies or things get stuck in the mud all the time, you know, all of that.
0: So I read that there were other black doctors who also worked
2: alongside the white doctors. Yes. So the key figure who was very smart, he got cancer and died in 1968. And the study gets exposed in 1972. So nobody got to ask Dr. Dibble why Mm. he was involved in the study. Rivers was still alive, but Dibble was not. So I actually wrote a whole chapter in my book called uh, Dr. Dibble's Dilemma, which was trying to understand why did he do it? You know, I mean, because you have to infer it from the papers he left behind in his other work. And I argued... That he was very much a science man, that he was really interested in the science. He worked as the director both at the hospital in Tuskegee, at the Institute, but also as head of the hospital in the the Veterans Hospital. He moved back and forth between both of them. He was a very big figure in African-American medicine as a local provider. And I think he thought that if they could prove that you didn't need to treat people at the later stages of the disease, that it would save an enormous amount of money. And would be a useful. So they think the science intrigued him. And then he was also, I argue, a race man. He was very concerned about what happened in the black community. And there was lots of support that came along the way. So what would happen, for example, is he ran these major clinics to help educate local black doctors about the latest in medicine because they couldn't join the American Medical Association. It was segregated. And so the public health service often sent their fancy doctors in to help him run these clinics. At one point, the pathologist, um, black pathologist who did all the autopsies, needed some extra training, and he wanted to go to Hopkins, to Johns Hopkins. Hopkins didn't let black doctors in. So Mm -hmm. the Public Health Service works their connection to Hopkins. Hopkins writes back, the doctor at Hopkins writes back to Dr. Dibble and says, you can send your Negro (laughs) essentially to us. And he goes and gets extra training and brings it back. So, you know, there were just all these perks. Uh, So I think you have to think about, you know, what's called like a Hobson's um, choice decision that is in the face of horrendous choices what choice do you make? And I think that that's how he ended up making those decisions to support it.
0: Context is is everything. Context is everything. Context is
2: everything in this case. Right.
0: So so, uh, some of the men were actually able to get treatment for syphilis after penicillin is established. Um, What how did they do this?
2: Well, so that's a good, so part of what I argue in part, I mean, the public health service did really try a little bit to keep them from getting treatment. It wrote letters. It tried to track them outside, but most, a lot of them become part of the great migration in the inter, you know, after the, between the first world war and the second world, but then also after the second world war out of the rural South. So when you look at the, the papers that are left behind, the records of uh, them, some of them are in Florida, a lot of them in Detroit or Chicago. So, you know, it's not like the Public Health Service had complete control. It wasn't a concentration camp, right? It wasn't that kind of thing. So people would, you know, get sick in the 50s. And in the 50s, if you got sick, you got penicillin. So my favorite story is um, Mr. Shaw, who was the Herman Shaw was the spokesman for the men when we got the federal apology, um, which we can talk about in a minute. But So in the 50s, Mr. Shaw got um, pneumonia, and he got sent to a local hospital, not to Tuskegee, but in Tallassee, which is about 10 miles outside of Tuskegee. And he got 10 days of penicillin IV to cure his pneumonia. Mr. Shaw lived until his 90s. So Ah. did it cure the syphilis, or was he so far out from the disease? who knows? We'll never know, right? We don't know. It was, there was no autopsy um, when he died in the, you know, in the 2000s. He died in the 2000s. So, um, you know, we just don't know. But so that's an example of what could have happened. So not, some people got treated at that point. It might have been too late to help them and if you already have you know an aneurysm in your heart penicillin's not going to fix that but um, you know some of them could have been helped but it's hard, it's really hard to know how many there's just no way to really know right. what happened and
0: so this wasn't a particularly well-conducted study. It was a
2: mess. Was a, <laughs> to, Tell us how messy. It was totally <laughs> messy. I mean, my favorite stories about this, for anyone knows about research. So you have a, an, a control arm that is men who don't have the disease, and then you have the diseased arm, right? That's how they did it. They could have, by the way, set it up as let's treat this half and not treat that half. They didn't do it that way, right? They did a control, nobody's sick, and the sick arm, right? So when people in the control arm got the disease, they transferred them into the other arm. So it completely screws up the stats. And when they did the autopsies, if somebody showed up who they thought was syphilitic and then they didn't find any evidence of the disease on the body, they didn't switch them into the control arm. So it's a mess. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the statistics make no sense. And so by the end, they admit that it's really a study of under-treated rather than not treated syphilis Ah. and it doesn't really all it proves is what we already knew which is most of the time if you don't treat people get sicker and some of them die i mean it's not like aids was at the very beginning it wasn't an immediate death sentence for everybody and some people as they said do survive it and don't get sick i mean think about like what we know about covid some people die and some people just you know get really super sick and some people are long haulers so it was those it was like that in that sense
0: wow that, yeah, when you compare it to COVID, it, it starts to make more sense why they would even consider something so terrible. Yeah,
2: right, exactly. And they were really, I mean, it was a serious disease and they really wanted the answers uh, about right. what would happen. So
0: um, so let's talk about this apology that comes um, during the Clinton uh, presidency. Okay.
2: Now you were involved. I was. Tell us about that. So what happened is in 19 um, – so in the early 1990s, Clinton does an apology for the radiation study where we radiated, you know, American citizens to try to figure out issues around radiation right, during the Cold War. Um, so in 1994, a group of us were at a, a conference about um about Tuskegee. It was 20 years after the story had ended. I mean, so the study ends in 1972. So we were at a conference. It was 22 years after, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we're watching a couple of films that had been made because of the anniversary. And as I say to my students, imagine if you had been one of the doctors who did it and you're still alive and you have to go on national television on a, to say what happened so you would, if it were me, I would go, oh, you know, it was a long time ago. It was the rural South. You know, we were racist then. You know, we're not anymore. Oh, so sorry. Right? You can just imagine what the, do- they don't do that. These guys are on the on the film going, we had the right to do this. It was a really good study. It was really important. Blah, blah, blah. And we're like, our heads are blowing, you know, like, Fling! shooting out of my head, you know, kind of all of us had this response in the conference, you know, with historians and bioethicists. So one of the wonderful people at the conference, uh, who's now passed away, but um, a bioethicist named John Fletcher threw away his notes after we watched this film and said, we've got to do something about this. This is horrendous. So there started to be a discussion about, about doing it. He made some contacts within CDC and the NIH. And then... There was a man who was at the conference. This is a lovely story. A man named Ralph Katz, who is a public health dentist. If you don't think those two terms don't <laughs> go together. And Ralph was working with another public health dentist named Reuben Warren, and who's an African American physician, a dentist and a public health person. And they were looking at issues of trust and um in public health in the black community so they used a little bit of money that they had from the federal government to call for a meeting in tuskegee in january of 1996 um so this is two years after the conference in virginia to bring people together to talk about what could we do about this what could happen so a number of us were there it was you know as i said bioethicists historians um local public health people from tuskegee blah 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 and um the idea came up that we should ask for an apology from the Clinton administration. So we formed something called the Legacy Committee, which was co-chaired by John Fletcher, this bioethicist, and a woman named Vanessa Northington Gamble, who's a physician and a medical historian. And we all helped write this report, which we called the Legacy Committee Report, and we made this demand on the government. Now, obviously, a group of citizens can write these kinds of things and it can go bloody nowhere, but we got contacts within the black congressional caucus. And I think Clinton realized that, look, this had gone on for 40 years. It wasn't a Republican or democratic thing had gone under all of those administrations. It was a good thing politically to do for the black community. And there were a lot of other things going on at that moment. So he essentially agreed to it. So on May 17th, 1997, um, we got the, um, so a year and a half later, after we started organizing, we got the apology. Um, and we had wanted them to come to the Tuskegee, but he couldn't manage. And he also thought the press would be, we'd get better coverage actually, if it was at the white house. So it was in the East room of the white house. And at that point, there were only six men left who hadn't passed away. And five of them were able to come to the white house. And one of them, like Mr. Simmons, it was amazing. He was 103 and he had never flown before. It was just adorable. It was so sweet. And then there we were. So those of us in Legacy Committee, right, we're standing outside ready to go into the White House. And I I mean, we're all trying to be very cool about it. We're all going, oh my God, it's the White House. Oh my God, we're going to the White House. You know, and we're not on some tour, right? So there we are in the East Room with, you know, every major Black political figure in the United States um, with us. And then, you know. Clinton gave this beautiful apology as only he, you know he has that just lovely southern um, way of doing it. And then Mr. Shaw became the spokesman. Um, Mr. Herman Shaw became the spokesman for the for the men, and he gave this very eloquent speech about why it should never have happened. And then Clinton stood up and apologized, and it wasn't a dry eye in the we room. We're all like weeping, you know. I mean, it was just um, pretty and amazing um, experience.
0: So I read that during this research, um, you were the one who uncovered the unpublished papers uh, about the 1940s Guatemala study? That's correct. So we spoke briefly about this study in our episode. Can you give us a
2: recap on what this particularly gruesome right. study right. Uh, entailed? Yes, exactly. So let me tell you what it was, and then I can tell you how I found it. If you want to do okay. it that way? So yeah. between – so. We get, so in 1943, we know that penicillin cures early syphilis, but we don't know what else it can do. It's still, a, you know, it's a new drug. So we're trying to figure it out. So one of the questions was, would it work as what's called a prophylaxis? That is, could you be exposed to the disease and then it could cure you before you evinced infection? So a little bit like, I don't know, the morning after pill, you know, the same idea of unprotected sex, you get this pill and then you don't get pregnant. So the idea was, could penicillin also work to protect you? from ever getting the infection. I mean, they didn't know, right? It was a new drug. Right. So they tried to, ex- the public health service does some experimenting at a prison. It was common to do prison experimentation in um, a prison in uh, the Midwest. Doesn't really work very well. They're having trouble getting people infected because sexually transmitted diseases have to be sexually transmitted. They have to be in moisture. They die in the air, blah, blah, blah. So a man named John Cutler who in the sixties ends up working actually in Tuskegee too, but in the forties, he's working out of the venereal disease laboratory of the public health service in, um, in Staten Island in New York. And, and while he's there, a man named Juan Funes is also there. So Juan Funes is a physician. He's the head of what we then called venereal diseases. Now we call sexually transmitted infections. So Funes is there, um, and my theory, I have no evidence for this, is that Funes and Cutler go out for a beer after work, right, one night. And Cutler says, you know, we tried to figure this out about penicillin, uh, whether it's a prophylaxis, um, in this prison, and it didn't work. And then, you know, blah, blah, you know, the problem of transferring. And Funes says, you know, uh, it's legal in Guatemala to bring sex workers into a prison for sex work you know, to service the prisoners. Why don't you come to Guatemala and we'll test it out because we could transfer. And then, you know, we could transfer the disease from the sex workers to the prisoners. And then we could see whether the penicillin works. So they write up this proposal, goes through the uh, National Institutes of Health, um, you know, uh, Venereal Disease Board. It's approved. Cutler and his wife, Elise Cutler, who's a photographer, pack up and go to Guatemala City with a bunch of other people from the Public Health Service, and they start by bringing in infected sex workers to this prison, to the major prison, to see whether or not um, they can transfer the disease. And they, my paper was called that I wrote about this is called "Normal Exposure." because they were trying to do it in any way normal. So they handed out cigarettes, they gave them alcohol so they could get a little drunk. Um, and they just didn't get enough d- disease. I mean, it still didn't pass a lot. So, you know, it's a little bit like if you get a cold, but your roommate doesn't, you know, sometimes some people get sick, some people don't. So they decided they'd try to do it a different way that they would inoculate people with the disease. So they made an inoculum of the disease either from stuff uh, that had been sent from rabbits also get syphilis. So you can draw it from the blood of rabbits or, and then they went to where they worked with Guatemalan soldiers with patients in a mental hospital with other sex workers and they injected people with the inoculums for syphilis, gonorrhea, and chancroid. Um, and they, and it was really kind of, I mean, the descriptions are quite gruesome because I mean, sometimes it was just a shot in the arm, but mostly they did things like they would take a man's penis, for example, they would abrade it with a little needle and then they would drip the inoculum like for an hour. Onto the score. Oh my God. I oh, know, the descriptions are enough. This, this is what went on, and nobody ever wrote it up. I mean, there's a famous paper called Inoculation Syphilis, which goes over all of the histories of all of the studies. It was published in the 1950s, and Cutler's one of the co authors of it, and it never mentions Guatemala. So there's no discussion of it. So I was in the archives in uh, Pittsburgh. Looking at the papers of John of um, Thomas Perrin, who was the the uh, Surgeon General who supports Tuskegee in the 30s, and colleagues of mine there said, you know, Cutler has papers there too. You might want to look at them. So I thought, oh, maybe there'll be more about Tuskegee in there. And I open up the boxes, and there's just thousands and thousands of pages about Guatemala and all the field notes, all the patient records. Elise Cutler's photographs, the correspondence, and it says really clearly inoculation syphilis. So this is in 2004 when I first found it. And I just thought, I have just spent the last 12 years of my life telling everybody nobody was given syphilis in Tuskegee, right? Tuskegee was a study to follow men who already had it presumably in the latency stage. And this is the United States government using our taxpayer money to pay for sex workers to go into prisons and to inoculate people. I was like completely horrified why wow. this you know completely horrified. but it looked like they were also treating because it looked like they were also studying the penicillin so i couldn't tell without doing the statistics so i sat on it for a while i went home because the pub- i was still working on the tuskegee book and i the the men's medical records for tuskegee had just opened up and so i i had all this work to do you know so i sat on it for a while and then when i finished the book in 2008 i thought you know i ought to go back and look at this again and i looked at my notes and i thought is that really what I saw? So I went back to Pittsburgh again in 2009 and I redid the research to make sure I had it. And then I, someone asked me to publish it in in this relatively obscure history journal. I said, fine. And at um, one point I was discussing it with a man named David Sensor and Sensor had been the director of the CDC um, for about 15 years and was the director when Tuskegee ended. And at one point we were in the car, we were driving, I was giving a talk at, at the CDC with him and he he said to me you know I'll never understand why anybody thought we would have given the men syphilis in Tuskegee and I said to him well Dave there's Guatemala so he said to me well what do you know about Guatemala and I looked at him like a good researcher and said so Dave what do you know about Guatemala and he said well I mean he was in medical school when it happened so it wasn't on his watch but he said well there were rumors about it in the division in the sexually transmitted diseases division and I said well look I found the papers and I'm writing this up can you read this for me when I'm finished? Because when you're a historian of medicine and you're not a physician or you're not knowledgeable about a particular area, you don't want to make any stupid medical mistakes because then the doctors, you know, blow their heads up. And so I said, look, will you read this? You're my aging, he was in his 80s. I said, You're my aging syphilologist. I need you to make sure the medicine part's correct. So when I finished the paper, I sent it to him. He called me immediately. We usually didn't call me. We usually just wrote back and forth on email. And he said, CDC is going to get in trouble when this paper comes out. And I said, Dave, no one's going to read this paper. It's going to be in this obscure history journal. I don't even read this journal, right? He said, no, in the age of the internet, everybody reads everything. It'll come out. Do you mind if I share it with them? And I said, no, that's fine. So he gave it to the higher ups at CDC. And then what ensued was lots of phone calls back and forth with me and them. They sent the head of their STD division to Pittsburgh to look at the materials. Um, I sent them my materials. He did a preliminary report on the statistics, which really showed what I hadn't been able to see, which was that they hadn't actually treated very many people either. Um, uh-huh. and that report went to NIH and then from NIH, it went to the white house, uh, domestic policy council into the state department. And, um, Rahm Emanuel's brother, Ezekiel Emanuel, who's a bioethicist was the point person at that point for the Obama administration, um, around health policy. And he's also written a lot about the ethics of international and global research. So he, and he knew who I was and he knew my work. And by then my Tuskegee book had been out for a year already, um, so the decision was made to have an apology um, to the Guatemalans made by um, – formerly by um, Secretary Clinton um, and from the State Department and Sebelius from Department of Health and Human Services and that Obama would call um, – the president President Colomb of Guatemala and apologize, you know, or explain what happened. And so the plan was on October first, twenty ten, that I would put my still not unpublished nor copy edited paper out on my the website for the college, uh, for Wellesley College, and then um, there was gonna be a press conference. But what the public health service about the my friends at the CDC didn't tell me was that they gave it to a news reporter the night before embargoed it. So I, the story goes out at nine o'clock, right? I'm home. We have given out my cell phone number as the contact (laughs) because we had no idea this was going to blow up. Right. And, um, at nine Oh two, I'm on my email and a friend of mine emails me and says, boy, Susan, this is amazing. And I go, how do you know about this? I just put it up two minutes ago. And she said, it's all over MSNBC. Right. And then five minutes later, the reporter from MSNBC calls me because they had given it to him and I knew him, you know, 40 years ago. We worked in health policy. I knew his work, you know, a long time ago. So we caught up and he said, oh, my news crew's on the way to your house. So I had to get out of my pajamas (laughs) and get ready. And then the entire world's media is on my cell phone. Right. That day, because there was nobody else to talk to, frankly.
0: I hope you had a lot of uh, data available on
2: your side. Yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh (laughs) my! Well, my poor husband, who's very shy, you know. So I'm in one. At one point, I was in a a video studio talking to the BBC, and Al Jazeera calls on the cell phone he has to talk to them. I mean, it was it whole thing was just (laughs) wild and really nuts um, for a couple. So that's what happened. And then one of the things that Obama did, which was right, is that he gave the story. Um, to his bioethics commission, they spent a year doing what I, as a lone professor in a small college, couldn't do, which is they collected tons more data, did hired the smartest people in SDDs to look at the data and to create tables and to get a better sense. So there are two reports from Obama's uh, bioethics commission about that study that have come out. Okay.
0: So back to Tuskegee. At the end of the day, I have to ask you, if you had to pick one person or thing, it can be a concept, to blame for the Tuskegee experiment. Who or what would that be?
2: The assumption of racism. I would, I would say the assumption that uh, the way racism permeates science. So the assumption that the disease was different in blacks and whites.
0: Wow. You just very
2: clear-headed... Well, I've been thinking about this for a very long time. I better have a one-sentence answer. Right? That's right. I've been looking at this for 30 years, for God's sake. I started thinking about this. I mean, I actually was going to write... The original book was going to be on Nurse Rivers. I was going to write about her because my dissertation book's on the history of nursing and I come out of women's history. But I decided I didn't want her to carry the burden of the story and there wasn't enough material. So in the there's a play in a movie called Miss Ever's Boys, which is based on it. And in in the film, she um, gives testimony in a Senate hearing, but she never did that. So there really wasn't enough material. And then I just didn't want her to carry the weight of the story.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Reverby, for joining us today and helping us get to the bottom of Who's to Blame for the Tuskegee experiment.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hello. Um, a lot of information we just got from Professor Reverby. I mean, it was... Oh, she was so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she thought
1: she was incredible.
0: I mean, and just a very passionate, so passionate. Um, and, and honestly, a whistleblower as well. We, we did talk about, you know, what we would do if we were in the position to find this kind of, like, information, um, and she definitely, she she rang the alarm.
1: Yes, she did. And, um, you know, she gets the preemptive big clap for our, if we do a future uh, on the Guatemala study, which sounded crazy. <laughs> crazy. About-
0: yeah. I know that one. God, we could do a whole episode on that one. Yeah. Totally. We'll have to put that one up on the list now. Something I, you okay, Chris? Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so I have the
1: COVID nineteen virus. Oh no, no, I don't, and it's not a <laughs> no, joke, and no, I apologize for joking joke. about it.
0: Uh, um, okay, so something she mentioned that I was like, well, first of all, condoms. I was like, we should have put condoms up on the list, or no, like, no condoms, right? No condoms. Um, what about Confederate statues? <laughs> yes. That's right, because they couldn't walk in front of the Confederate statue in Macon County.
1: Well, she was saying that people's expectation of Miss Rivers was that she should stop everything and go stand in the middle of town square and say, stop this thing. She was sort of, I think, being hyperbolic in that Yeah, sense. no, no,
0: but, but literally, but literally you couldn't... I mean, that to me is like such a metaphor for what's really happening uh, at the time, which is that they... Uh, uh, It was just like a symbol that was really bringing them down. And side note, I'm glad they're going to take it down. I hope they end up going through with it. Look, at the end of the day, she decided that uh, scientific um, racism was to blame. And I think we I actually think we sent the United States public health system to jail. And then we slapped Dr. Clark and Dr. Vanderleer. So we didn't send scientific racism to jail. Well, I mean that that was my instinct too. So maybe maybe we need to send them to jail. I I think we might.
1: Yeah, well, you can kind of roll up those boys into the uh the science uh the racism of science at the time. That's yeah. true. Um so, you know, you might be able to do that. What? And I, I mean, I just think that Usually when you ask one of these like super intelligent and articulate experts to come up with one thing to blame for a, a tragedy, they sort of they're like, Well, it's too hard or it's really complicated, it's not that simple. But I just love that uh that our expert uh that Dr. Uh B. yeah. Yeah, she came up with something and she was just right on the spot, ready to go, had the answer and it and it was convincing too the yeah, way she, put she did
0: not it. hesitate. <laughs> I I think I got to call it, Amanda. Okay. And I I think this one deserves uh, someone else going to jail. I'm okay with two two things going uh, to jail for this one. Yeah. So I'm calling it Scientific Racism. You're going to the alarmist jail. Well, I'm really glad we spoke to Dr. uh, Reverby. (laughs) Professor Reverby, she was very, you know, informative and... um, Thank you so much for uh, listening to our show.
1: I will say, I say, maybe we can take a page out of the uh, United States Health Service, and um, we can sort of infect the people in the Alarmist Prison with. Uh, we can send them some sex workers and see if we can infect some of those bad boys in there.
0: I think we we should no. learn our lesson that that's not. Yeah, I think we should. That's learn. not a good thing to do. Maybe Chris had a different takeaway.
1: Well, you know, if you can't steal from uh, these nefarious, you know, uh, deeds, um, you know, what what good is studying them, I guess, if you can't adopt them as your own policies?
0: Rebecca, you might have to have a conversation with him. Yeah, we'll talk about this off the air. (laughs) I don't think he gets the podcast. No, no, no. He's going to have. No, I don't think he does either. (laughs) Well, tune in next week. We will be discussing the extinction of the dodo bird.
2: Eerios. Powered by Acast.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.